Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I am your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we are talking about a very important subject. You hear me talking all the time on the podcast about the importance of building a brand, building a community, you know, creating uh, this brand that resonates with people, uh, because that's where the value is. The value is in creating a sustainable brand. Uh, in fact, in our most recent podcast, we talked to Rick Cesari, uh, branding expert. And so if you did not listen to that episode, go back and check it out. It's one of my favorites. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce. Hey, that's my company. Uh, OMG Commerce is the primary underwriter of the e-commerce evolution podcast. And we're excited to do that. Excited to bring this content to you. A quick offer from OMG Commerce. We are a Google Premier Partner. So we're in the top 3% of all Google partners, one of the fastest growing in the world last year. Uh, if you would like a second set of eyes on your Google campaigns, whether that's Google Shopping, Search, YouTube, Remarketing, or the like, we would love to talk to you. Love to schedule a strategy session. Love to look at your campaigns and provide ideas for improvement. Also, Amazon. We would love to talk to you about your Amazon ad strategy and have an Amazon audit for you, uh, complimentary for listeners of the e-commerce evolution podcast. Our Amazon department is led by Mr. Chris Tyler to find out more about the way we approach Amazon campaigns. Go back and check out episode 39 as we do a deep dive and look at Amazon advertising. But we would love to help you with either of those traffic sources. And so if you're interested, go to omgcommerce.com, click on any of the services, and there's a quick form to fill out right there. And now back to the show. Today, we're talking about how to protect your brand, right? So building it and making your brand desirable and making people want to buy your products, that's only part of the game, right? Once you've gotten into this a little bit, you realize that we have things to, to fight like, like knockoffs and unscrupulous competitors and all kinds of other things and, and, and patent trolls that may come after us and all kinds of other things. And so our guest today, I, I met him at an internet retailer in Chicago, struck up a conversation, started talking about patents for e-commerce and what to consider and what makes sense. And so we thought, you know, th this is a really important topic for our audience. And so diving into how to protect your brand, how to make sure you're protected from uh, patent infringement. And, and so it's going to be uh, super useful. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Ms. Mr. Rich Goldstein, to the, the call. Rich, how you doing, man? And thanks for coming on. I'm doing well. Thanks, Brett. Great to be here. Yeah, really excited to dig into this, this topic. And it's such an important one. You know, I know, I know some people, um, myself included, don't always like to dig into the legal side of things, right? That's, you know, talking about contracts and legalese. You know, we don't get all excited about that. But, but this area of law is, is particularly fascinating, I think, looking at, at patents. And it's just, it's critical. It's critical to protect your brand, critical to protect yourself. And so we've got a, a variety of things I want to dive into because you're the patent expert and especially for e-commerce. And so I guess one of the places to start is, you know, when, when do I consider patenting one of my products? Because I think what happens with a lot of people is, 
we want to prove that something is viable. And so we go out and start running traffic and making sales. And we're, you know, some entrepreneurs are kind of like the old gunslingers. We like to just kind of go for it. We'll figure out the details later. Um, but when, when should someone consider a patent? Yeah, great question. And it, it leads to a, a very uh, critical, very common trap that a lot of entrepreneurs fall into in terms of waiting. So if it is something that's valuable, if it is a product that has promise, then the time to apply for a patent is before you launch the product or possibly a very short period of time after that. Uh, but you do need to do it uh, either before or just shortly after. And I think most people don't realize that if you launch a product, you make it public before you apply for a patent, you immediately lose the right to, to ever patent it in much of the world. Um, and in the U.S., there's technically a grace period if, and in the best case, then one year later, you'll lose the right to patent it. So uh, I, I think what you were just saying about the and common approach of, of looking to create something and make sure that it's viable um, is... Um, it certainly makes a lot of business sense. And at the same time, it could lead to you losing your rights. Right. Most people don't realize that that public disclosure or your own public disclosure can prevent you from getting a patent. And so this is something you just need to be aware of enough to, to stop and think for a moment before you launch the product. Is this something valuable? Is, it, is this something that has potential? And let's take a close look at whether it is patentable, let's take a close look at what about it can be patentable so that you can see, hey, is there something about this product that can be patentable that also is something that's important to the market? And I think that's where you want to really take a close look is whether it's something that's both patentable and marketable. Yep. And if it is, then now's the time to do something about it. Got it. So just answering the question of when uh, really the, the answer is, is when is as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise it just might be too late. Yep. So if you, if you feel like it is marketable and it has huge potential or even good potential and it is patentable, then sooner the better, but ideally before you launch, um, let's talk then, I think it's a great segue into what makes a product patentable. So when can you patent a product versus when can you not? So, so can you kind of walk us through, and I think there, there are a few factors to consider on whether something is patentable or not. Yeah, absolutely. So really there's two main things to consider. One is, is it different enough from things that already exist? And the second is, is it the right subject matter? So is it even the right type of thing that can be patented? Uh, so they call that patentable subject matter. And what it comes down to is there's four categories of things that qualify for patent protection. And I could name them, but it would get a little confusing. So to keep it simple, we can just say that if it's a physical product that has functional or design differences, or if it's a process, and that includes software and apps, then it probably has patentable subject matter. I mean, let me just talk about the type of things that don't so that you can have a, a sense of where the contrast is. So things that don't qualify are things like, uh, like books, movies, songs, product names, these are things that have to do with content typically, or in the case of product names, that's branding. And those aren't patentable. And the correct subject matter that they are for is for other types of protection, things like copyright protection or trademark protection. 
So whereas whereas trademark protection that would protect your your marks, your your brand, your logo, things like that, copyright would protect your content. But specifically, patents are about product or process. Exactly, that's exactly right. So uh, if you're talking about a product and it's about the actual product itself, not the name for the product, but the, um, the, the features of the product, then you're talking about a patent and typically it will have patentable subject matter. So then that's the first part. And then the second part is whether it's different enough. Gotcha. So, so whether it's different enough, let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, we're, we're all, I think in some ways trying to build, build a better, uh, proverbial mousetrap or, or maybe we are building a product that, that truly is brand new and there's nothing like it, but how, how do you kind of determine if something is, is brand new, right? It's not, it's not like we're saying, well, yes, there are lots of other, you know, pens, but mine is the green pen. And so it's patentable. You know, you can't patent a color and things like that for sure. But, but uh, how, how do you determine if something is, is new enough? Um, so that's the thing is, is, is to figure out that if, if it's, I, I mean, intuitively we know right. that to patent something, it has to be different. It's like when we think about a patent, it's like we think, well, I have an invention. I've created something new and therefore I'm going to patent it. So it's pretty clear to us that it has to be different. But the question is, how different does it have to be? So under the patent laws, there's, there's really two criteria there. One is, is it novel? That means, is it different in any way from things that exist before? And usually this is the easy one to get past. And then the second one is, it, um, is, is it non-obvious? And that can get a little confusing in itself, but let me just explain what it means. It's kind that, of like- that, that statement is non-obvious, but yes, go ahead. All right, let's, let's uh, right, explain. Right, exactly. Yeah. So is it non-obvious? So, and what is, what's so obvious about non-obvious? So exactly, it's, it's, we don't really know what that means. We don't have a um, kind of an analog in our non-legal world to figure out what that means. So let me just break it down here. Um, when you consider what's different about your invention from things that existed before, the difference must be something more than something that would be obvious to people in the field of that invention. So another way of putting that is um, even if people in the field, people who design products like this, haven't done exactly what you have in mind, does it fit within the range of possibilities that are, are, are typically what they're working with? And uh, again, still a little bit abstract, but in any particular field, there are um, elements of, I don't know, if you're designing um, computer memory devices, you know that you could use static RAM or dynamic RAM, or there are just certain types of um, choices that you could pick from. And maybe no one has put it in quite this combination before. But if all of those choices pretty much fit within the range of what people in the field typically draw upon, then it's probably obvious. And it can be rather subjective, um, some people will say, well, that's obvious. And other people will think that's not obvious. In other words, that's pretty clever. I wouldn't have thought of that. And when it comes down to it, this is often what we argue with the patent office about is they'll reject an application and say that it's obvious. And I'll argue on behalf of a client and convince them that no, it really isn't obvious um, and that it isn't something that people in the field would have thought to do. Does the Just, just curious, to, kind of as a side note, does the patent office ever just for the sake of expediency or, or, or whatever, it's a bureaucracy. Do they ever look at an idea and say, ah, not, not obvious, uh, or it's not non-obvious? 
and then just reject it. Like, so, so does the patent office often just reject as their knee jerk reaction yes. or, or are they pretty considerate? Okay. Absolutely. And, and, uh, uh, that's kind of, that's part of the reality of the patent office is that they're busy and, uh, the examiners are given a certain allocation of time to examine each application and, um, tend to think that it takes um, takes less time to find the reason to reject something yes. than it does to just make sure that everything is in order and all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed for them to approve it. So very often we will initially get um, a first rejection. And then what we do is we sit down and we, uh, we look at what their, um, their, their reasoning is and we see whether it's legitimate or not or whether it's something that we could easily overcome by presenting arguments. And most of the time it pays to present arguments because you would think that once someone rejects something, they're going to dig their heels in and they're not going to be easily convinced. Otherwise, uh, in reality, once they reject something, if we present good arguments, then uh, most of the time we're able to convince them to remove the rejection and approve the patent. Nice. Yeah, uh, very cool. Can, can you think of some examples, uh, and, and maybe you can't give specifics if there's confidentiality or whatever, but examples of things that were maybe rejected initially and then you were able to argue it, or or just examples of things that, that do re- get rejected versus don't get rejected? Yeah, well, I mean, I could give you an example of some things that are just classic obvious. So classic obvious are things like changing the size of a product, or as you mentioned, the, the, the green pin. So changing the color. Uh, it, that that's plainly obvious to someone in the field to make it whatever color they want or to make something whatever size that they want. Um, so maybe an example would be if you wanted to produce clothes hangers that were kind of small in size to be used with children's clothing. Now, let's imagine that didn't exist before because I think if you go into a Target, you'll find small clothes hangers. Yep, yep. So imagining it didn't exist. I have approximately one million of them in my, in my home. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I have eight, eight children, and so we have... Uh, eight yeah, children, hangers. wow. <laughs> yeah, true story. So uh, anyway, okay, cool. So, so uh, small kid-sized hangers, yes, I'm with you. Yeah, and so um, it, it might be different from things that existed before, hypothetically. But um, in the field, it would be obvious to make it any size that you choose. And probably um, clothes hangers are are presented in one common uh, general size because it tends to fit most clothing. And just for the sake of manufacturing efficiency, they make it in one um, average size. Um, but to the people that design those products, to the people that that manufacture clothes hangers, it would be obvious to make it any size. So that's classic obvious right there. Um, so changing the size of a product, changing um, the material of the product where there's no specific unexpected results, that might be considered obvious. So a lot of times things on the edges are um, clearer. In other words, so if someone comes to me with, a, with an idea and I could say, well, that's, that's clearly non-obvious. Like the, the that is not something that anyone would ordinarily think of. And therefore, it's, it's going to have very little problem getting through. And then there are things that, that we see. And then once you know that this is the principle that it's judged upon, obviousness, that you, you look and say, well, yeah, that's definitely obvious. It doesn't take a patent lawyer to figure that out, figure out that that one's going to be obvious and it's never going to get a patent. So on the edges, 
there are the ones that, that plainly fit in the categories of obvious or non-obvious. And in the middle, everything else is more kind of subjective and, and, and we'll just have to see how it goes. And then when we write a patent application, we seek to present it in a way that, that really puts the invention's best foot forward and, and makes it seem like perhaps even more brilliant of an, of an um, improvement than it might be. So potential little little uh, little salesmanship in the uh, a little bit of spin, perhaps. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I'm I'm with you there. I'm with you. I'm following. Um, great. So let's talk about the the different types of patents and and when you might consider each. So I think there there are two types of patents, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe like a a slight variation of those or something. So so talk about patent types. Yeah, there are two two main types that that really apply to uh, to to uh, people making products or software things like that. So, and that is a utility patent and design patent. So, utility patent is what protects functional differences in products. So, you have a a different combination of uh, of features. You have something new, and it's for a functional purpose. Then it's a utility patent that you're talking about. Um, if the main difference is just the appearance of the product, that really for the ornamental um, uh, sake of it, for its or as they put it, the, its ornamental appearance, then we're talking about a design patent. Um, and so, and and by the way, these patents differ tremendously in a bunch of respects. One of which is cost. Yeah. So, utility yeah. patent is a lot more expensive to apply for than a design patent, and the main reason is. That with a utility patent, we need to explain in, in detail what the invention is, how it's different from things that have been done before, and really set the stage for why it's worthy of a patent. Typical utility patent application will be um, drawings plus maybe 30 pages of text. Design patent, on the other hand, is just all about the appearance of, of the item. So it's really all about having a skillfully prepared set of drawings created. And the, the written portions of the application is, is really just a couple of pages. So there's a big difference in cost. Um, there's also a difference in terms of the, um, the probability of success. Uh, with utility patents, we're often arguing those functional differences. We're arguing, um, we're arguing it against things that existed before. In other words, the, the, the prior art, the prior inventions. And... Uh, Maybe the odds of, of a utility patent going through are about 70%. With a design patent, um, as long as it's a distinctive design, and, and usually the um, kind of the threshold for how different the design needs to be ends up being relatively low. So I'd say a design patent, it's about 90% oh, wow. likely to go through. Yeah, yeah. So, so much more likely. And, and then in terms of cost, like how, how do they compare? So is, is one double the, the price of the other, or what, what does that look like typically? With a utility patent, typically 10000 and up. Uh, with a design patent, a few thousand. So it's it's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. Because it is a pretty significant difference in terms of the amount of time that's required to, to put it together. Sure. Totally makes sense. Now, what about, a, what about a provisional patent? Does that like apply to either one and that's just a different form, or, or what, what, is, what does that even mean? Uh, a provisional patent application is it's a stepping stone toward a utility patent. Okay. So basically a provisional patent application is a way to file a functional invention and do it a bit less formally and therefore spend a bit less on preparation and filing of the application. And it gives you a year 
to then um, kind of go out there with it in the world, be able to say that it's patent pending. And, um, and within that year, then you can choose to file the utility application and keep priority from when you file the provisional. So just to, just to clarify that a bit. So it's kind of like if we file the provisional, you get priority. And then as long as you file the utility application within a year, it gets priority from when you file the provisional. And so even if someone filed a utility application in between, in other words, after you filed your provisional, you would still be ahead of them. Gotcha. But there's one major caveat to that. The priority is only as good as the application is well-written. So if it's not well-written, if it's not well-expressed, then you are not going to have priority over an application that, that does fully describe and, and properly disclose the invention. Got it. So, and, and, and how this comes into play is that when you file a provisional application, it doesn't get reviewed. Uh, the patent office doesn't consider whether it's good enough. They simply give you a filing receipt. Yeah, yeah. And so if, if you... So, so when you see that someone says it's, this is patent pending, it doesn't really mean a whole lot then, does it? I mean, it doesn't mean that they're going to be guaranteed a patent. Exactly. It could mean a whole bunch of different things that someone's patent pending. Um, it could mean they filed a provisional application that they prepared on their own and at the other extreme, it could mean that they filed a utility application that was well-prepared and, and it um, fully describes the invention. So when, when you see patent pending, it means that they've done something, but there's really no telling what they Got did and, and, yeah. and what the result is going to be. But if you, if you file that um, provisional poorly, then it's just a false sense of security. So because they don't review it, a lot of times people think like, well, I'll just put together a couple of paragraph description and I'll file it as a provisional. And oh, I got my filing receipt, so I'm patent right. pending. Right. But just consider that if you ever need to rely on it, it won't be good enough. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And another thing I want to note before we move on from this is that um, with utilities and designs, a lot of times it pays to do both. Hmm. And if you have a product that has functional features and it also has a distinctive appearance, uh, we file both a utility and a design. Uh, ultimately, we may get protection on two different aspects of it, but it's also a good hedging strategy because the, the utility is uh, is more expensive, and it if it's granted, it's going to give you great protection over the concept potentially, but it's you know less likely that you're going to actually get it issued. It's, right. it's a little more risky where the design patent will be less protection, less expensive, uh, but very likely to be approved. So it's a, those two together, it's a pretty good hedging strategy to do both. And often there's synergy in terms of the cost when you do both. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So maybe, maybe a little bit of savings if you're doing both yeah. and then you've got the 90% chance, if I remember right, on the design patent, 70% chance on the utility. And then so now you're, you're, you're very likely to get at least one, potentially both. Exactly. And at the very least, what the design patent is useful for is for preventing direct knockoffs. When someone unimaginatively copies your product, it's going to look the same. Yep. And if it looks the same, it's going to infringe the design patent. Got it. Got it. Um, so, you know, a lot of our uh, listeners are selling on Amazon. We, we talk about success on Amazon as a, as a recurring theme on the show. Uh, that's also a place where, you know, people have to deal with with knockoffs and 
uh, overseas sellers who are, are blatantly copying their product. So, so how do we how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect ourselves against knockoffs and, and anything specific to Amazon that you want to share? Okay. Well, um, first of all, uh, let's just leave patents for a moment and go to trademarks. Sure. Because the first line of defense is to get your brand protected. Yeah. Um, it's inexpensive. Uh, for for a couple thousand dollars soup to nuts, you can get a, a word mark application filed, which protects the name that you're selling the product under. And um, once you get it registered, then you could enter the, the brand gating 2.0 program. And so then that becomes a very effective way to stop someone who just jumps on with a product, same product, same name, that just trying to... Um, they're just trying to compete with you on uh, in this unfair manner. And so if you get your brand protected, then that can handle a lot of scenarios where people try to hijack what you're doing. Now, as far as patents go, one of the cool things about Amazon is that um, you can make an IP complaint and get a listing shut down if it's infringing a patent. And I mean, we all hear a lot from people that have been unfairly shut down by a patent that they think they're really not infringing. And yes, this is unfortunate, but if we want to look at the bright side of that, is that they seem to really defer to patent owners. So you might as well use that to your advantage yep. and be a patent owner and be the one that's able to shut down all the listings, um, you know, even if it's questionable. I'm not saying that you should um, use it as a weapon against people that really aren't copying your idea, but a lot of times with patent infringement, it's debatable. But it seems like, um, that in in uh, close cases, Amazon seems to be taking the side of the patent owners. Gotcha. And if that's the case, and if that continues to be the case, you might as well be a patent yep. owner. It makes makes the makes the case for a patent much stronger if if the the tie goes to the the runner, so to speak, or tie tie goes to the the patent holder in this yeah. case, which which makes sense. Certainly, and and it also makes it stronger the fact that um, in the old days, there's there's always the question of that's from the old days talking about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> in internet years, that's a long time ago. Right. You know, well, what's it going to cost to enforce this patent? Uh, but these days, if you're selling on Amazon, you send an IP complaint, just writing an email, and, and you don't even have to get your attorney involved. Right. So enforcement... It's the, it's, be, the, it's the court of Amazon, as you like to refer to it, right? Yes, exactly. In the court of Amazon, where they tend to defer to the patent owners... Um, it makes sense to have protection. And, and, and so in, in that regard, uh, design patents are making a lot more sense these days than they used to. So in the old days where you had to go to court to enforce a design patent um, might not be worth it. These days, though, if you have a design patent and it, the design patent looks exactly like your product and someone's knocking it off with a product that's just like yours, Chances are, once you put that in front of Amazon, they're going to say, well, yeah, it looks just like the patent. So um, it must be infringing. Let's shut them down. And I've seen that happen both fairly and unfairly. But again, you might as well use that to your advantage. And, and if you have a product with a distinctive appearance that you're, you're going to launch, you might as well file design patent applications for it. Got it. So just to recap on, on the, the Amazon side of the equation, Get your get your uh, brand trademarked, then then register that with Amazon. Get brand registered. That also allows things like enhanced brand content, which you know we do a lot on the marketing side. And 
optimization side on Amazon. So getting brand registered so you can enable enhanced brand content is huge, but but then you can get involved in, in brand gating and then get patented because that's going to just uh, allow another layer of protection there and utilize the court of Amazon. Thanks, Jeff Bezos. Uh, to to protect us further, so um, love it. Let's let's transition a little bit because I think the other the other big side of patents is how do we make sure we're not infringing on someone's patent, and how do we potentially protect ourselves from patent trolls? And I know that may be a whole another topic that's uh, slimy and and difficult to get into. But but how do we make sure we're not you know infringing on a patent? And so uh, let, let's dive into that. How do we how do we um, protect ourselves and make sure we're not infringing on an existing patent as we're designing our products. Got it. Yes. I mean, this is a major concern for e-commerce sellers, um, both with products that you're making and also products that you're looking to potentially make. And the, the, the unfortunate answer is you can't ever really be sure. Um, it, it's, well, I shouldn't say ever. And I'll give you, I'm going to give you a couple examples where you can be almost certain that you're not infringing. Um, but overall it's difficult for two reasons. So any, any infringement evaluation process, there's two aspects to it. Number one is you need to identify patents that you might be infringing. Um, and then the second part of that is you need to analyze them to see if you are actually infringing it. So if you were about to launch a product and you went to a lawyer to do what's called a freedom to operate review, which means Am I going to step on any toes anywhere in any way? It's going to be very expensive because the first thing that that needs to happen is is they need to do research to find any patents related to it that you might in any way be stepping on. And that might be through any mechanism of it or any portion of it, the whole or a part of it or, or what have you. And so that's a pretty involved research project in itself. And then the analysis of those patents can get pretty complicated and Um, and even patent lawyers differ in opinion on on what is infringing and what's not. Um, But let's go beyond that kind of like, like really kind of daunting reality of it. And let's even like look, look beyond um, the scenario where you're spending any money at all on this. Let's just talk about the types of things that you could figure out the easier cases that you could, you can determine. So so first of all, we said that initially you'd have to identify patents that you might be infringing. Well, let's imagine that you have a patent number. You're looking at a product and you see it has a patent number and you, and you wonder, can I make a product like this? So first thing you want to do is you want to look it up. And you can go to Google Patents and, and that's patents.google.com. Didn't so, even know this existed, by the way. Google's got a, a, Google's of, got a product for everything. So if, if that's the one takeaway from this from this um, podcast, then that's tremendous in itself. Now you know where to look up a patent. Yep. Just go to patents.google.com. You put in the patent number, and uh, and then up will pull or, or up will be revealed the patent document. And now once you see this patent document, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you of what's there, um, but. Now you know how to look it up, and that's the first step. So, and here's the thing. So let me let me give you a few principles that will give you some shortcuts for sorting out some of these situations. So first principle is expired patents are fair game. If you look at the patent number and it's expired, fair game. If you want to manu- manufacture exactly what's in that patent, 
there's nothing that can stop you from doing that. So um, in terms of what's expired, utility patents so that's, last. So that's where that's where like recently to, to make an e-commerce uh, comparison, the buy with one click, the the checkout with one click that Amazon had developed and patented. That patent expired not long ago, and so you know Shopify released a feature shortly thereafter, where you know with one click you can you can check out, and it's phenomenal. And so so there are scenarios like that though with physical products or all kinds of stuff. So once that patent's expired, free game, you can use that patent as your blueprint if you want to and make that product right. Absolutely, absolutely, it's fair game. And again, most people don't even realize that and don't know how to look up a patent and don't know how to, how to then see what the patent date is. And now the, another aspect of that is that utility patents last for roughly 20 years from the time they're filed. So um, there's a few minor exceptions to that, but rest assured, if you see a, a patent and it's from 25 years ago, you know it's expired. And um, design patents last for 15 years from the time they're granted. So again, um, if, if the patent is uh, at least a few years older than that, then you know for sure that it's expired. So once you figure out what's expired, you see a whole group of, of products that you could potentially make. Now, what if it's not expired? So this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, but it's still doable. I still have lots of, of clients and friends that, that, um, that do this in order to really uh, get some sense of clarity and safety around the products they're about to make. So the other major principle, principle number two, is that whatever the patent covers, so if you're looking at a patent, whatever it covers, it can't be things that existed already at the time of the patent. So it may be difficult to read the patent and read the claims and understand what the scope of the patent is, what it's covering, but once you do some further digging and see the things that existed at the time that this patent was granted, then you know, well, whatever it is, it can't be those other things. So if it's a, um, you know, if it's a bicycle with a certain type of transmission or gearing system that you want to copy, um, if you find an example of the gearing system that existed before the bicycle, then you know that whatever this bicycle patent is for, it's not for that gearing system. And a lot of times people look at a patent and they see in the, it's, there it is in the picture. So they must have the patent on this bicycle with this mm -hmm. gearing system. But every patent has a scope. Every patent has limits. So when you can look at the history of it, you can begin to see what that is. And, and there's, a, uh, there's an easy way to begin to look at the history. And that is when you're looking at the patent on Google Patents, there'll be a list of references cited. And those are patents that the examiner was looking at at the time that they considered whether to grant this person their patent. And so there'll always be older patents there. And sometimes there'll be patents from 1920 or 1905. And if you see an example of the thing that you're trying to do from 1905, then as we said, you know, you're good. Your patents are fair game. Yep. If you want to make exactly what's in that 1905 patent, go right ahead. Interesting. And at the very least, it's now limited what you think this present patent would right, be about. Right, right, yeah. Totally makes sense. And you know what's interesting, kind of to, to, to go to the, the benefits or to, to, to maybe drive this point home a little bit more as to why you should consider patents or, you know, and, and also why it's important to, to check for patents, make sure you're not infringing. 
you know, I, I remember this is one of the one of the lessons uh, from Shark Tank. Uh, I enjoy watching the show Shark Tank, but you know, that's one of the things they bring up a lot as they're looking to make a deal. If they're, as they're looking to invest in a company, you know, they're they're asking, "Is your core product patented?" And if it's not, then that severely limits the value of the product and of the company. And and or on the flip side would be, is your product that you're selling violating some other patent? Like if it is, then wow, you know, that that severely limits not only your growth potential, but but your potential to sell the business. The value of the business is greatly impacted by by patents. Uh, in, in anything you'd want to add to that or or or, or clarify there? Absolutely. Well, I mean, going back to the first question probably you're asking like of uh when you should apply for a patent or like, well, like what's the main reason you would apply for a patent? See, I don't want to encourage people to just file a patent on everything. Right, right. Just because there's something that's different doesn't mean you should apply for a patent. There always needs to be value at stake. So you see something about your product that's different from products that exist before. And you confirm that that feature is itself patentable because other people have not done that. Now the question is, does the market care about this feature? So if, if you can patent a stapler that has a certain like release button that lets you remove jam staples or something like that, then um, I'm, I'm the writing that one down. That's that's brilliant. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do people use staplers the way they used to? That's another question. I don't use staplers at all, but, but some people do, for sure, yeah. But, uh, the, yeah, so that's the relevant question is the market. So the, the question is, is the market going to care about that feature enough that if your competitor said, hey, I really love this stapler, but I don't need to make that, that, that release button part, and then they make the product without the part of it that you're patenting, then are they going to be able to do just as well as you? If... If it's if that's not the case, if the the market really does want that feature, um, then you should patent it. So when you see something that's that you're producing that you're about to produce that has something that's patentable and it's something that the market is going to care about, that's when you patent it. Got it. Got it. That's great. Great. Great advice. Fantastic. And I think. You know, going back to the money discussion, knowing what it costs to run the patents and, and then comparing that to, hey, is this a marketable feature and how big is the market? And just helping you understand all of that, I, I think, really weighs into the position. It weighs into the decision, rather. So, uh, Richard, this has been uh, phenomenal. I'll let you kind of wrap up with any closing thoughts. Also want to make sure we point people to any good resources. I uh, would love for them to check out your site and your book and some of the resources you have. So, so any, any, and wrapping up any important tip or, or a bit of info we didn't cover, I mean, there's a lot to this subject, but yeah, there, there is a lot. And, and I would say that the most important thing is just don't get stuck with a little bit of education. You often can get yourself through any IP scenario that comes your way. Sometimes the more difficult problems you need to go to a patent lawyer for, but once you learn some basic principles, you'll avoid getting stuck in, in places that all of your competitors are. Like when they see a patent number and they just say, oh, well, I guess I can't make it. Yeah. Like, no, now you can dig a little deeper and see maybe there is an opportunity still there. Or when someone is saying you're infringing my patent and you know how to take a look and to see that, um, that well, they, they didn't actually invent this whole big thing. They invented one part of it. Like now you've got an advantage in knowing how to handle the scenario. I see too many people get stuck, too many people 
just um, stop selling a product or destroy their inventory simply because they were threatened by someone and it wasn't really a legit threat. So learn a little bit about the process. Um, I, have, um, I have a few resources for that. One is the book that you mentioned. So the ABA asked me to write a book to explain to entrepreneurs how patents work. And I did. And that's called the ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent. Awesome. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. So there'll be links at ecommerceevolution.com. People can find the book great. that way. But yeah, no, it's a great resource. I have a copy. Uh, so yeah, ch- check that out for sure. What, what else? Um, thank you. And um, uh, you can go to my website, goldsteinpatentlaw.com. And um, I have videos on the website there at goldsteinpatentlaw.com slash videos. And um, there's a series of six videos there that would take you a half an hour to watch and truly would, would teach you that much more than any other e-commerce seller knows about patents. Yeah. So that's a totally worthwhile, um, worthwhile thing to do. Awesome. And again, we'll, we'll link to that website in the show notes as well. Uh, but guys, protect yourself. Know, know your stuff when it comes to patents. It's going to impact your business now when you go to sell. Uh, and don't don't let people bully you into thinking you're infringing on their patents. You may not be. Uh, this is a really important topic. Don't gloss over it. I know. I know things like marketing and growth for me anyway are more fun. But this this is uh, critically important to your business. So, uh, Richard, this has been phenomenal. Thank you for for helping us tackle a really complex problem and making it clear and easy to understand. And uh, really, really appreciate the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And so again, I'll, I'll link to all the resources in the show note. Check out Richard's book and his resources. Uh, and with that, guys, thanks for tuning in. Would love to hear feedback. What topics would you like to hear more of? We'd like to know what you think of the show. If you're so inclined, uh, we would love to get that five-star review on iTunes. And with that, until next time, thank you for listening. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.